Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that's willing to go where other Buddhist podcasts fear to tread. Coming to you from Trieste, Italy and Bath, England, each episode we discuss topical issues concerning Western Buddhism with a bit of banter and occasional guests. You can join in the fun at our dedicated Facebook page and Twitter feed. Download episodes from SoundCloud and MixCloud. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the new episode of the Imperfect Buddhist Podcast. My name is Matthew. And my name is Stuart. And today we're going to talk about the landscape of contemporary Western Buddhism, in particular of those who we think are innovating to some degree. Uh, This will be an overview for new listeners and perhaps those who are unfamiliar with some of these uh, individuals and groups. So we hope it's going to be informative. Um, In future episodes, we're going to discuss some of them in more detail and look at some of the work they're doing and uh, add some critique and uh, think about and discuss uh, what's working and how how much the innovation is actually producing something new in Western Buddhism. So um, it's interesting. When we think about Buddhism, it's important to remember that there are a few uh, distinctions we can make. One of them is between like ethnic Buddhists and convert Buddhists. So um, often the ethnic Buddhists get forgotten about. Um, another way to think of this distinction is between like temple Buddhists and like meditation centers. Um, most Westerns probably are involved in meditation center convert Buddhists. And there's even a third category which you sometimes hear about in more academic literature, which are uh, Buddhist sympathizers. Or there's this fantastic term, Stuart. Have you heard of this one? Nightstand Buddhists. I haven't heard of that, Matthew. What's a nightstand Buddhist? Well, you can imagine this is somebody who's got a nice book, perhaps by the Dalai Lama or some other super famous Buddhist icon. Um, And they've got a book on their nightstand, on their bedside table, and they're going to lie in bed at night and read a page or two and probably it's going to give them some nice warm feelings inside. Um, But without being nasty, I mean, these are people who've got some degree of curiosity about Buddhism, probably think it's a nice idea, but perhaps don't do much else. So that's, that's like owning the, the little book of calm and thinking that, you know, that's going to make them a calmer person, basically. Yeah, it could be something like that. It could be something who's dabbled with the idea of meditation, but doesn't really go any further, you know? Um, I, I don't know if we could also um, categorize those people that sort of appreciate the Dalai Lama and have maybe read articles about him in Time magazine. Uh, who knows? But certainly Buddhism as an idea is pretty popular in the West. 
Anyway, um, another distinction to make, I think, which is useful, is between Buddhism and Buddhisms. Um, I, it's funny, you know, whenever you, you speak to people who practice Buddhism, whether it's Tibetan Buddhism or um, Southeast Asian Buddhism or Japanese Buddhism, whether it be Zen or, or um, something like Sokagai, Sokagakai, if I, did I say that correctly? How do you say that? Do you know? I think it's Sokagakai. That sounds better. You, you did a few Japanese lessons once upon a time. I did some, <laughs> ja- I did some Japanese lessons indeed. So maybe maybe your uh, way of pronouncing it is correct. Um, it's funny they normally say you know I'm a Buddhist, but you know my thought these days is well all right, but which one, you know, and to which degree? So it's it's worth making a distinction between the singular monolithic thing out there somewhere and the fact there are multiple Buddhisms, often with very different ideas, right? That's right, and that, I think that's a really good distinction to make. The fact that you're making a difference between the overall system of Buddhism and the individual schools and streams and developments that developed over time. Yeah. And I mean, for the discussion today, I think we're going to make uh, further distinctions. And we're going to talk about sort of modern traditional, uh, sounds a bit uh, like a paradox, but you know, uh, modern folks um, working with traditional Buddhism, Um, those who are trying to innovate as well, by producing what we might determine, what we might, we might sort of define as uh, American Buddhism or Western Buddhism, which I think is that which interests us. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're talking about, I, I guess if we're talking about innovation, what you and I are both interested in are, are some of the themes that are quite sort of prominent in uh, contemporary innovative Buddhism: pragmatism, um, progress, um, you know, the use of uh, intellect and the rational mind, um, sort of bringing together religion and science, which is, again is a hot topic and well worth discussing in a future episode. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of um, this distinction between, you know, uh, religion, spiritual and pragmatism and results, which is a theme we're going to see today with some of the groups we discuss, right? Yes, yes. And that'll be, that's going to be interesting to, to explore and, and, and work through. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and, and just one other note, going back to what we said about Buddhisms, um, I read recently that in Los Angeles there are something like 80 different Buddhist schools, which is quite crazy if you think about it. Schools for children? <laughs> no, <laughs> Buddhist schools, Buddhist lineages and so forth. Oh, oh, lineages schools, I see. I yeah, see. yeah, that's right, for the, for the grown-up children, Stuart. That's right. Yeah, so look, let's start um, with a prominent figure. I think somebody who's central to uh, the creation of a lot of um, the, the you know the, the practices and ideas that are taking place today um, in the West. A central figure would be Chogyam Trungpa. Uh, you, you're familiar with him, right, Stuart? That's right. I think a lot of Western Buddhists and Eastern Buddhists are very familiar with Chogyam Trungpa. Yeah, mostly because well, he's a, he's a he's a both an innovative figure and, uh, and and controversial. If you read his life story, it's a, definitely a controversial story there, Matthew. Yeah, and he's influenced uh, a lot of people um, who, are, who are teaching today and practicing. And he's given rise to, um, you know, an entire new tradition, we might call it, called Shambhala, which you've had experience with. I think we're going to talk about that in a future episode. But uh, it seems to me that um, the Shambhala organization isn't doing a huge amount in the way of innovation. But uh, some of Chogyam Trungpa's students 
Uh, one in particular, I think, is doing some interesting work. Even though it's quite traditional, he's uh, doing a lot of experimentation. Reggie Ray is the guy I'm thinking of. Do you want to say something about him? Sure, yeah. I'd, I'd love to say some stuff about Reggie. He's a, he's an interesting chap. And if you if you listen to some of his talks or some of his videos on YouTube, he's he definitely seems, you know, he's he's definitely got his act together. You can hear the stuff that he's saying. It's, it's very cohesive and it's very focused. So he's, at the moment, he's based in Crestone, Colorado in the U.S., and he's a Western American Buddhist academic and teacher. Now, if for people that haven't um, done any looking into or research into Tibetan Buddhism, he has two very well-written, solid introductory books on Tibetan Buddhism. One is called Indestructible Truth, which tends to focus on the sutras, and then Secret of the Vajra World, which, which is Mahayana up through Vajrayana, as well as having a groundbreaking audio series called Mahamudra in the in the modern world, which is available on Sounds True Audio. That sounded just like uh, product placement, Stuart. Yeah, exactly. Have you been in contact with Reggie? Is he uh, paying you money to say all this? You caught me. Yeah, I'm. I'm now. I'm going to have to split the money with you. But um, he's well, as you as you said, he's one of the original students of Chogyam Trungpa. He was um he was also a faculty member on the Naropa on Naropa University from seventy four through to two thousand and nine. Does it, I mean, is he still working as an academic? I think he is. He's a PhD, so I think he has um university students. If memory serves, he has university students that he he wrote these books so that he could give them to his students. Okay. rather yeah. than having to go through the whole thing every you know every new semester he he'd say right. here's, here's my book read it we'll you know we'll, we'll cover a, a chapter or two every week or two and um you know and then be able that's to develop a, that that's at naropa right i believe that's at naropa yes yeah they, it's funny though because you know in, in the states they have this um they have this tendency to produce like educational uh sources which I, I don't know if you could do in, in many other countries. I don't know if it'd be possible in Europe to sort of build your own Buddhist university. I wonder how Probably how not. valid Europa is considered, you know, by other academics, and whether Reggie Ray's uh, respected by other academics in the field, perhaps who who are not involved with Buddhism so intimately and teach it as well. I mean, that's an interesting question. That's a very interesting question. I don't know the answer to that, but I, I like I like where your reasoning is going with that. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, it'd be worth checking that out. Maybe we can follow up on that and uh, and see what see what comes up. Or maybe if uh, a listener is um, you know up to date, has a bit of information or insight on that, we could, they could let us know. So, what's Reggie Ray doing? Do you think that's innovative? So he was also a teacher in residence at Shambhala Mountain Center from ninety six to two thousand and four, and during that time, near the end of that time, I believe that the direction that Chogim Trumpa set out initially with his with his teachings, he had the secular branch of teachings, which was um, the warrior training and the, the Shambhala training specifically. And then the other side was his more traditional style um, teachings that he, he brought from Tibet. So there were two, there are two systems that were working side by side. And what started to happen is um, Sakyong Mipan Rinpoche, Chogim Trumpa's son, started to bring the two together. And there was a lot of conflict and a lot of um, – there were students that weren't very happy about it, basically. So sort of internal politics. Exactly. And there would have been power struggles and all of that that would have gone with the politics and the changing of the systems. Um, so he left and, and he took the teachings that he, he got and the, the lineage and the transmissions and all of that stuff 
and the practices that he that he'd learned and and obviously grounded himself in he took those and he started up the Dharma Ocean Foundation so what he's doing with that is basically taking the Vajrayana lineage and he's you know he he's presenting it to the world in a way that isn't watered down that isn't compromised that isn't you know going against what he believes his teacher taught him so do you think he's a genuine continuation of the um, the attempt by Chogyam Trungpa to westernize to a certain degree uh, tantric practices to make them workable? As far as I can see, he seems to be one of the only people that actually are. Yeah, yeah. I know he does um, a lot of work on the body and on emotions, which I think is, is, is probably extremely healthy for Westerners, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you know much about his body work? Have you ever tried that out? I haven't tried any of his body work out. I would imagine that, I, although I haven't listened to the Mahamudra in the Modern World audio series, I would imagine that there's quite a lot of focus there. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's got to be. Awareness practices have to be grounded in the body as far as I understand it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thinking about innovation, I mean, just the fact, I mean, looking at some of the work of his that I've read, um, one of the, the factors that we're going to see with, with the work of um, the other people we talk about in a minute is just language, you know. I think, mm-hmm. I mean, being a student of language myself, it's amazing how, uh, how much has changed in the literature that you can read these days in how things are named and how they are discussed. So we think about the two texts you mentioned before that are used by the Naropa students. I, I've read both of those and I also found them to be uh, pretty solid but I was also, um, you know, impressed by the degree to which he was making uh, a lot of quite complex and esoteric teachings accessible through Western language and through reducing a lot of the sort of buzzwords and, you know, the sort of the traditional terminology that tends to, I would say, almost close off certain practices and teachings and concepts in, in, in very sort of uh, abstract, highly spiritualized or even superpower mode which is one of the features of Tibetan Buddhism in general. I mean, he seems to be grounding a lot of it. Super, super powered, super super power mode. mode. Yeah, you know, this sort of, uh, you must have come come across this. These are certainly some of the first Tibetan teachers that I came across in in England, you know, they're they're using this language where it's like, you know, to get enlightened, for example, means you're basically, you know, better than Superman. You can fly, you can levitate, you can read people's minds. You know all information from all times. You can remember can all I, your past and future lifetimes. Can, can, can I walk through walls? Can I walk through walls? exactly. And you can probably pass through rocks and things like, you know, Millerapa did. Could I read, yeah, anyway, I read I mean, people's minds? Yeah, probably. I mean, you'd be surprised as to, I don't know if you had this experience of meeting Westerners, you know, very nice folks in, in Buddhist centers, you know, left, right, and center. And they kind of take that stuff literally, you know, they actually think, my teacher, he has these powers, you know? That's right. He might just be a normal llama, but I'm sure when the doors close and he's by himself, then he's walking on water and flying through space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a sticky business. So I think one of the good things that Reggie Ray did was he managed to sort of humanize um, some of the central practices Tibetan Buddhism, like, you know, like a guru, uh, having faith in your guru. Guru, yeah, guru, guru, guru yoga. That's the one. Thank you. Welcome. And so forth. And I, I think, I think, I mean, we, we could look further into his work later on, but certainly um, he, he's brought a lot of those practices down to earth. And another thing that's worth mentioning about Reggie is he's, um, he's been good with the LGBT community. Yeah. I think Reggie's actually, um, I, I think he's been quite um, outspoken in opening the doors 
to that community, and I think that's you know that's a huge huge positive. That's a fantastic thing. Yeah, that really yeah. that really is. That's fantastic. Yeah, because we mustn't forget, you know, that there are even traces of you know anti-gay sentiments in t- traditional Tibetan Buddhism, you know. And let's not go down the route of talking about monasteries. No, no, we won't do that for now. All right, let's um, let's move on. Let's talk about another organization which is actually based in Europe. Um, we are not Americans. We must remind listeners of that. As Europeans, we have uh, quite a prominent tradition in the West that's actually based near you, in, near you in Bath. It's actually in Wales, and it's called the Arotair. And uh, again, they've um, received uh, you know a little bit of criticism criticism from traditionalists. But the great thing about the Arotair is that they are Westerners. They are Westerners born and raised. And they are trying to do something innovative with, I guess, what they, they assume is traditional um, Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism and contemporary sort of interpretation or application of that. Tell us something more about that, Stuart. Sure, I'd love to. So as you, as you said, they're, uh, they're based in the UK. They have... They have they tend to be primarily focused in the UK, in Wales, um, in Bristol. There's maybe some stuff going on in London, but they tend to, tend to be this side of the country. Um, they also have senders in in the US, and because they're very focused on, um, you know, they're very inspired by by Chugim Trump or or, or Trump and teachings that they they're very welcomed within the within the Shambhala community and they've you know they've taught there in the past or Nakhchen Rinpoche has. So there's two main teachers. The two main teachers are Nakhchen Rinpoche and Kandra Daichen, who is his wife. And the system of teaching is a Tibetan Nyingma Terma and as defined by their website, um, the Arota is a stream of Vajrayana Buddhism in which ordination is congruous with romance, marriage, and family life. It focuses on the teaching and practice of the inner tantras from the point of view of Dzogchen. Now, there's a lot of buzzwords in there, um, but essentially, it's a, it's a Tibetan school of, um, of Tibetan Buddhism, of Tibetan Tantra, um, which Dzogchen is, is considered the, you know, the, the, the pinnacle, the, you know, the, the end result. And Zogjin is uh, non-dual practice, right? Exactly, non-dual practice. Um, it goes, it's kind of teams up with Mahamudra, really. And um, it's a terma, so it's it's a visionary cycle of teachings that's supposedly perfect for right now in the West, which is why, you know, they're here. Um, it's non-mona- which, it's non-monastic. Which, yeah, go on. Which possibly explains as well some of the the sort of controversy. Mm-hmm. Controversy. The controversy. controversy. Yes, controversy. Amazing what happens when you get on a podcast. Your, your mouth stops working. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, this it's a bit of an odd idea, isn't it? Um, certainly with with the rational and the sort of intellectual and almost scientific. This idea that somehow um, these guys received. From you know space or a rock or somewhere, these magical teachings that were mm. transmitted. Um, how does that sit with you? This idea of terma of um, how can we say that in a word that, for people who wouldn't understand that term, like revealed truths? Yeah, revealed teachings, something like that. Revelationary teachings. They're self. In you know, if they're earth terma, they're supposedly they're you know they're wrapped up in layers of poison and hidden in rocks. <laughs> that's pretty wacky. It is um, within a special capsule that's written, and the you know the the 
the, the stuff that you'd read if you unrolled the scroll that's in there, it would be written in what's called Dakini cipher. So only the person that's supposed to find it would be able to read it and understand its true meaning. Wow. You know, that, that does open to all sorts of... Um, <laughs> interpretation, yeah. Problem, yeah. I mean, because, you know, if, uh, if I wanted to be a Tibetan teacher, I could basically just say, i got some turmoil going on here. That's right. Um, you know, I found it in my backyard and have you, have I'm ready you, to Matthew, go. Do you have your turmoil going on right now? I'm going to look for some after this show, but really... <laughs> Go digging in your back garden. <laughs> but that'll be the next episode. You know, Matt's Turma, you know, any backyard Turma. Anyway, let's move on from silliness. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's very shamanic, isn't it? I mean, sometimes, um, you know, there's a lot of bullshit that goes on in discussion of Tibetan Buddhism, especially in like the mainstream stuff, you know, like Galupa, which is what the Dalai Lama is part of, where mm-hmm. um, a lot of Westerners probably haven't really given much thought to the, the, this you know, this factor that Tibetan Buddhism is highly shamanic, yeah? yeah. Um, and the idea of terma is highly shamanic. And, you know, we could have a long discussion about that considering about, you know, Indian Buddhism. Um, but also, you know, Hinduism, a lot of that sort of falls into the same line, you know, this revealed truth from some sort of divine source. Um, Hinduism, anyway. Hinduism is, is shamanic as well. Yeah, well, that's the point I was trying to make then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could argue even talking about Jesus and so forth that, Half the nonsense they talk about in the Bible, it's all shamanic, you know, rebirth, going into a cave, you know, visionary quest. But uh, coming back to the Arrow Terror, um, are they innovating, do you think? Are they innovating? Well, personally, I wouldn't say so. Um, they're still, you know, it's a little known traditional style of practice that comes out of Tibet. It's, you know, it, it was the the style of practice they 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 practice is known as the old school so it was you know the practices they have are handed down by Padmasambhava who went to Tibet and they had a whole you know factional thing with the Bompo who were the the shamans there in Tibet at the time so I think that probably would have really influenced their practices um he has a you know he I think he's a valid teacher you know to put that away and and not have to worry about that he studied with some you know he studied with Dilgo Kense Rinpoche Dujon Rinpoche Kanzang Dorje Rinpoche who's on the front of the Wisdom Eccentrics book which is a very good book and and Chimmy Rigdon Rinpoche who's his root lama so you know he he's got some solid teachers behind him um but the fact that it exists in the west doesn't necessarily mean that it's particularly innovative firstly um but the books that he's written um, could be seen as innovative in the sense if you compare them to more traditional dusty, you know, tomes, that they could be seen as innovative. But as you know, as good as they are, and they are good books, I would more likely describe them as brilliantly eccentric rather than radical or extremely innovative. Okay, but I mean, they they, they contrast quite nicely with some of the traditional Tibetan monasteries that you can find in the West, like uh, Samyaling up in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that, as you said before, they prioritize relationships, right, and couples. Um, and I think, all right, we, we, we might say that they pre-existed already in Tibet. But even there, they were sort of a minority group in a sense. I mean, from what I understand, exactly. they, were, they were pretty, you know, they were on the fringe of Tibetan society. And, I mean, they seem to be on the fringe of Tibetan Buddhism in the West as well. But, I mean, I've been on a couple of retreats with them, so I can talk from personal experience Going back to language again, um, you know, the, the main guy, he, in his books, he plays with language a lot. And I think the way he plays with language, it could, it could sort of put a few people off. But I think, in a sense, that already is an attempt at some form of innovation, you know? Because I would we agree. Think about, right? We think about language as the code, you know, encoding the teachings or the practices or the ideas and beliefs. 
he's certainly sort of unwrapping, reformulating and playing with that in a way that I think actually is fundamental to any form of innovation in the West. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, I love his books. I think they're great. I think he's a good teacher as well. Um, likewise, I tried to study with them, but it, it wasn't a very good fit. So, um, like you say, the language is fantastic. Reading the books, the language for me is beautiful. I, I read it and it, it just, it has, he has a way of playing with words that conjures the magical. It, has, it kind of conjures up the magical. And I think that that's important because practice does have an element of magic within it. And that I think that's being lost with the whole mindfulness stuff, you know, all of that stuff. Right. I think it's really that's for me that's important, and especially when yeah. you're dealing with tantra and zogchen, that's that's you need that symbolic magic behind it. Right. Yeah, and, and I mean, in a sense, that's the nature of, of tantric practice. It's quite magical, or it's, I mean, another way of, of saying magical is symbolic. Right, it's playing with symbols. That's right, and tan- um, tantra is symbol. I mean, Mahamudra means the great seal, doesn't it? So that's in itself is symbolic. Yeah, but I think I think this whole idea of playing with language and using Western idioms is a major feature of innovation in Buddhism in the West. And I think it's a slow process, which is perhaps um, you know is, is, is catching up as time goes on. More and more people are doing it, as we find more and more Western teachers involved with Buddhism. And it's a fundamental path that needs to be followed if any innovation is to, going to take place. And I think, again, reflecting on some of his work, um, he plays with a lot of metaphors that are Western metaphors. And I think that already is, is, is potential progress. Plus the simplification. I remember uh, some of my earlier experience of uh, Tantric Buddhism. It's highly ritualized, highly symbolic, extremely formal, and, you know, a very orthodox in a way, you know, as if the primarily Tibetan teachers that I worked with back in the day, they're trying to reproduce the same formula, the same format and the same steps that they would have gone through perhaps a couple of hundred years ago in Tibet. And I remember the first time I went to an Aritea retreat, I was quite young, I was in my, my early to mid-20s, and there was an empowerment. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, I'll get ready. There's going to be long, it's going to be pretty boring. There's going to be all this, you know, sort of costumes and, you know, fanfare and it was really straightforward and simple. It lasted, you know, like half an hour or something. It was primarily about, you know, relating to this this experience of this symbolic being. And even the way it was described was much more down to earth and much uh, much simpler. And I thought, actually, I, I don't know if that was the case in Tibet already, but that compared to the more orthodox Tibetan practices I've been involved with, I thought was already highly innovative. Absolutely. And I think part of that is because they're, it's based on transmission of mind. Yeah. So it's based on, you know, how, how can you make a long elaborate ritual based upon the transmission of mind from, you know, you, you get it or you don't, yeah. you, know, you, right. you, you can't elaborate on that. And I think that that's because they're focused, they're, they're primarily rooted and focused at that end of the spectrum of the nine yana system that, you know, that's, I think that's their approach and that's probably why but yeah. that is innovative in its, in its sense. Okay, well, I think that's another topic we can talk about in the future. You know, tantra, transmission, um, guru yoga, and so forth. These are rich topics. Yes. Many of them are slightly problematic if we try and fit them into some of the ideas we have in the West of, of reality and person and so forth. But anyway, let's move on. Um, so thinking about the Arotea, there's another person that comes to mind who I think is very interesting and uh, the audience should check out if they haven't just yet. And he's actually an Arotea apprentice. I think he has been for 20-odd years or something. 
Um, his name is Dave Chapman or David Chapman. And he's got quite a few websites um, where I would say innovation is taking place. But in, in particular, uh, the critique and analysis of Buddhism is innovative. So he's got a few sites. The one that uh, I think is most interesting is called meaningness.com. There's a huge amount of uh, material there. And uh, he's, he's got a really good grasp of Western philosophy and social theory. I mean, he's very bright. As far as I'm aware, he was a scientist and engineer at some point working on artificial intelligence. So even though he's involved with the Arotair and their rather eccentric approach, he's, he's very sharp and he brings some very astute observations and critique to Buddhism, in particular uh, contemporary Western Buddhism. I would recommend that people have a look at his work on consensus Buddhism, which was a big project he ran over there. I think that's more or less finished now. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not perfect, but a lot of the critique he makes resonates with, you know, our experience and some of the discussions that you and I have had in pubs throughout the years about what's wrong with, you know, sort of uh, contemporary Western Buddhism. So check that out. Um, it's just nice as well, Stuart, to have somebody who's, who's really sharp and really intelligent. And although they're very, very much involved with Buddhism, they really don't care about upsetting people or critiquing. And, you know, he doesn't feel the need. It's, that's the impression I get. They feel the need to sort of um, to be nice to people. And in fact, being nice is the theme, probably one of the major themes in his consensus Buddhism work. Um, he's also done some great work on naturalizing Buddhist Tantra. Um, that should be self-explanatory. Um, and he was also involved um, on a forum, a forum or, or discussion uh, that was ongoing for several years that I was also involved in too at the Speculative Non-Buddhist site. Um, that, 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 that project has stopped now and we're going to talk about that afterwards. But he was, I would say, one of the more sort of rational, calmer voices. Anyway, that's, that's Dave Chapman. An another person we can look at now who, and this will be a nice bridge from the Arrow Tear and sticking with um, Tibetan Buddhism, is Ken McLeod and Unfettered Mind. And you're familiar with, with Ken McLeod too, right, Stuart? That's right. To a, to a degree, I'm, I'm familiar with Ken. He's done some uh, some interesting work with uh, with the Buddhist geeks. He's he's a very good panel um, host. He's, he's very, yeah, very um, good at that. And he was part of the the uh, the Kagyu school, the Karma Kagyu school. I think his teacher was Kalu Rinpoche. That's right. Who was one of these um, sort of godfathers of Tibetan Buddhism in the West. Uh, he came over, I, I assume, more or less at the same time as Chogyam Trungpa. After you know, they were they sort of escaped from China. But um, he managed to set up a lot of schools in the West. And I know that um, Ken McLeod was his translator for a while. And Ken did a couple of uh, three-year retreats, you know, the traditional Tibetan retreat, which are pretty, pretty heavy going. That's pretty intense. Three, was it three years, three months, three days? That's a lot of time to commit, isn't three, it? Three hours, three minutes, three seconds, I think. Really? It works that way. Right, okay. It's quite that specific. Yeah. So I think if I remember his story, he had a sort of uh, emotional or mental sort of breakdown during the second one. And his conclusion from that was that he needed to, to, to find his own way forward and start basically doing his own thing. And I think, I think, I mean, he's received all of these figures that we're talking about today have received critique from various sources. But, um, you know, our, our intention today is not to discuss those. I think uh, the work he's done has been fantastic. Um, his book which was called Wake Up to Your Life, which is a bit of a cheesy title. Um, it's certainly innovative. I would say in a sense that he's, he's carrying on to some degree, not directly but indirectly, the sort of work that uh, Chogyam Trungpa was doing, which is uh, attempting to westernize Tantra 
and uh, Mahayana practices from Tibet and reformulate them into a system that can be worked with by Westerners. So, I mean, uh, I, th- I think Ken pioneered, I mean, basically he was the pioneer of a new type of one-to-one relationship between students and teachers. I mean, that's really, that's very, very new. I mean, he, he's a, a business coach as far as I'm aware. So he, I think he brought that model into working with students one-to-one here in the West. I mean, he's based in Los Angeles. So he's one of those 80 schools we mentioned before. Um, but what I, what I like the way I see it, if I remember my experience with Tibetan Buddhism, there was always this talk of, you know, you have to find a teacher, right? And you have to check out a number of teachers and you have to have this immensely personal relationship with your teacher. Special connection, man. You have Special to have that. Special connection. Yeah, but also, you know, you must have had this experience. You had to have a personal relationship. You can imagine how easy it was to have a personal relationship with someone like Kalu Rinpoche or Chogyam Trungpa or the Dalai Lama. I mean, they've got th- they had thousands of followers. I mean, the idea of having a personal relationship is a joke. But we're not only we're not we're talking about here in the West. We're not talking yeah. about going to Macau Ganj or going over to Dharamsala and and yeah. uh, meeting them when Buddhism's just starting up. Yeah, then you can get a personal relationship when you, you got sure? flocks of yeah at the beginning. But, yeah, you but could. How, how personal is that? I mean, if you think, let's say you, you know you consider the Dalai Lama your teacher and you know he's your maybe, maybe guru. Maybe not the Dalai Lama. How the hell are you actually going to have a decent conversation with him about? You know, the nuances of uh, your meditation practice, where you're stuck, what's working, and then, you know, all this, you know, psycho-emotional stuff, which people usually end up talking about anyway. It's not possible. Well, no, not with the Dalai Lama, but with the other teachers, you know, it's it's possible. Yeah, I think think that's very generous of you. I I think probably in most cases it was really not possible at all. Really? I mean, maybe like with like the, the initial like 10 to 20 students that these people had, possibly. I mean, like Reggie Ray, we mentioned before, he, he would have had a very personal relationship and direct relationship with Trungpa. But you think once Trungpa started, you know, traveling around the States and giving all these talks, you know, to hundreds of people. I mean, you know, look at his son now. I mean, they must have thousands of people enrolled in these Shambhala programs. How many of them actually have a proper chat with that's the guy? My, that's my contrast, and you just made yeah. the contrast for me, is that at the beginning when you could, you know, when Westerners started going over to, you know, over to India and, and, and that direction, they could have a one-to-one relationship more or less to a greater or yeah. lesser degree with these people, with these teachers. But now in the West, it's just not possible. No, it's not not possible, especially, you know, and I won't go down this this road of inquiry because maybe it's a topic for further discussion later, but you can't have a a one-to-one discussion or a one-to-one relationship with with Sakomipa Rinpoche, with all the students he had. Just not possible. No, no, it's unrealistic. And um, I think, you know, what we see there as well is that that sort of straying into this sort of guru worship dynamic where, you know, the guru ends up being this, uh, this repetitive sort of archetypal figure, which is this sort of father figure, distant father figure, which is so prominent in the West. It's absurd. Anyway, I mean, I, again, this is one of the reasons why I think we, we, we have to push and encourage for genuine Western Buddhism with, you know, a greater number of teachers, um, teachers or mentors or coaches, whatever, whatever term might become more appropriate as time goes on, who can actually engage with a Western vernacular and actually have one-to-one relationships with people, which means they're going to be much smaller, Right. They're going to be less less teachers, prominent. The teachers are going to be smaller. <laughs> yeah, shorter, thinner. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. I mean, you know, they're not going to be these big, you know, best-selling figures uh, who've got thousands of followers and probably end up being wealthy from it. I mean, um, making, what making, nice making s- books that only, you know, writing books that tailor to the majority of their students, which just doesn't tailor to yeah. anybody at the end of the day. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's weird, you know. I mean, again, this brings up the relevance of Buddhism and how and how relevant people actually are. I mean, I think I think some teachers in the West struggle with that question, you know, how how do I make my work and my presence and my relationship with students relevant, you know, and realistic at the same time? And um, I think you know, Ken Ken is a good figure in that sense because he's got a regular job, and as far as I'm aware, at the moment he's actually not taking on students, but. When he was seeing students, it was within that that coaching dynamic, and it was a personal one to one relationship, and he based his teaching on that. And I think that's the way to go forward. I think we need more of that, and we need more people willing to experiment with that to see what works, and hopefully building models, whether they're you know based on you know tantric Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, or you know Southeast Asian Buddhism, whatever that's Westernized, but that, that's that's practical. And I think that's where pragmatic is fundamental. I know I know that Ken was one of the first people to start talking about the way he taught as pragmatic Buddhism. So um, what else can we say about it? I mean, one of the key points as well, which we're going to see in some of the other figures we discuss later, is that um, they're practice-focused, so they're, in, they're based on experience rather than abstraction. So one of the things he does with his practices and the way he teaches is he says, um, you've got to work and meet with your immediate experience and your direct experience, right, which makes it very human. Um, he directly engages with students and he uses Western language, okay? And the other factor that we're going to see with, with, with figures is this creating an individual path. And I think if you actually literally um, examine some of the, you know, the models that came out of Tibet and Japanese, you know, um, Mahayana and Tantric Buddhism, the idea of having a teacher is that the teacher actually works with you individually and you create the path together, you know? Yes. And, and I think as far as I'm concerned, that's the only way to go. That is, if you're serious about practice, that there's no other way to go. And, and Ken, how, how could it be? I don't see any other way to go but to follow that that model. Yeah, well, that, I guess that's the difference between religious Buddhism and nightstand Buddhism, and a lot of you know, I, you know, I might get some flag for this. What, what, what but ethnic Buddhism, mm. where it's more religious, you know? Did you say you n- go to Sunday service? You know, you you listen to a nice talk, you do a meditation practice or some chanting, and then you go home afterwards. I mean, a major, major feature of convert Buddhism, the serious convert Buddhism, is people actually wanting to do a lot of meditation practice to, to move forward and change something about themselves. Yeah. Did you make a contrast there between Pure Land Buddhism and Nice Land Buddhism? Is that what you said? No, I didn't say that. That's, that's yours. Oh, is that mine? Is that, Okay, well, I'll take ownership. I think there should be, you know, there probably is a school of Buddhism called Nice Land Buddhism where, well, that, where everybody's that nice to each other. That with consensus Buddhism. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, a feature of nice Buddhism is, is almost like a sort of Sunday Sunday morning, you know, church attendance or mass, Sunday mass. And you bring out it, best It seems clothes. to be the same thing. All right, that's right. You dress up, you look nice, you put on a smile. Everybody believes in God just for Sunday. Yeah, and yeah, you, you, that's probably a nice comparison you made there. Actually, I mean, um, yeah, sort of lightweight Buddhism is another way we might, we might define it. You know, <laughs> you know, lightweight Buddhism. You know, it's a bit therapeutic. It's uh, it's communal. It's social. If you I don't, don't want to, if you don't want to put in the work, <laughs> that too. Yeah, lightweight right. Buddhism is for you. You, you, yeah. Let's let the teacher do the work, and we're just going to listen and uh, smile. <laughs> but yeah, I mean. We should make another distinction. I mean, there's so much that needs to be said here, but um, there are different types of Western Buddhists, right, Stuart? I mean, there are those, you know, that Western Buddhists, specifically convert Buddhists I'm talking about now. There are those that want to participate lightly. Um, there are those who um, 
identify with Western Buddhism or with traditional Buddhism. They identify with it, which means they actually genuinely say, you know, I'm a Kagyu Buddhist, you know, um, I'm a Theravada Buddhist, etc., etc. And even those guys, I think, are great. But I think what, what I'm really interested in is the people that are looking at trying to put into practice and trying to realize the promises of Buddhism, right? And I think some of the people we're talking about today are, are instrumental in, in going along, going down that path, you know, mm-hmm. not just using it as some sort of therapeutic cure or some sort of, um, you know, developed Buddhist identity, which I've talked quite a lot about in my, my work over at post-traditional Buddhism. But they're actually looking at, okay, what produces real change? You know, how can we actually come to terms with some of these Buddhist truths like, you know, the no self or the interdependence? Or the lack of a soul, um, you know. So I think I think Ken's doing something, got a lot to offer. Um, students can check out his work. He's he's got a huge number of podcasts which you can download for free. And um, again, he works with language and he works with social theory as well, and he applies all that to the way he teaches. Um, I think possibly, Stuart, this is a good place for us to bring uh, to a close the first half of this talk. Sure, absolutely. Um, we're going to continue next episode by looking at um, some of the, the teachers that are connected to the Buddhist Geeks work. You're going to hear about Daniel Ingram, the Dharma Overground, which was originally the Dharma Underground, Kenneth Folk, Hokai Sabol, and we're also going to talk about the big bad boys of uh, American Buddhism, who are the non-speculative Buddhists, who are fantastic. Uh, you're going to hear about Glenn Wallace, um, the anti-Buddha, which is Tom Pepper, and <laughs> I said that. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. I love it. <laughs> and uh, some of the the, the the people that have uh, basically started working um, with some of the ideas that are presented by those two controversial figures. Uh, tune in next time here at the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.